Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. There has been no de-escalation in the tensions between North Korea and the U.S. Both Presidents Donald Trump and Korean leader Kim Jong-un have taken jabs at each other, questioning each other's sanity. Kim spent the summer testing nuclear weapons and delivery missiles. Trump has ratcheted up military training exercises in the region with allies South Korea and Japan. The Trump administration is leaning on China to deal with North Korea. China wants stability on the peninsula. Joining us on the line to talk about the situation in North Korea and how China is involved or how they should be involved is Dr. Shi Chan Chu, a professor of political science and international relations at Bucknell University. Dr. Shu, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I'm going to start with the big question right off the bat, and that is, what is North Korea trying to do? What is their endgame, in your opinion? Um, I think North Korea actually has been very consistent over the years in terms of their objectives. I think, number one, they really need to uh, recognition by the United States. Uh, they want to officially end the, the Korean War. They want a peace treaty instead of armistice agreement. And, of course, they also want uh, lots of economic aid to help the economy. So those are the three major objectives. I think they have never changed over the years. But if they haven't changed, they're not very well recognized here in the United States, even by American leaders. Why not come right out and say that this is what we're looking for? Well, they, well, they have a unique way of yes, making, they do. Make, yeah, making their statements. Uh, the problem is, um, I think uh, there's a lack of trust between the United States and North Korea. And uh, they're not even talking to each other right now. So I think each time they uh, launch a missile or, or uh, do a nuclear test. It's, it's their statement. They're, they're, it's a, their unique way of inviting the United States to, to the negotiating table to talk about those issues. But, of course, over the years, uh, the United States has rejected uh, their, their, their initiatives. And so, so that's why we have this uh, stalemate now. You know, there are many people here in the U.S. when they describe Kim Jong-un uh, describe him as being unstable. I mean, there, you hear words like crazy, nuts, that uh, he has a mental illness, that uh, he, he really has, you know, in fact, the president has gone as far as saying, he, uh, you know, so many words that he has a death wish. Uh, what about that? How, how, you know, how would you describe Kim Jong-un? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we heard a lot of uh, descriptions of Kim Jong-un, like he's he's mad man, you know. Uh, well, I think, I don't think he's mad. I think actually he's very uh, calculating. Um, he knows how to play the games. Um, it's like a, a tail wagging the dogs. I mean, the United States and China are big dogs, I guess. Uh, so um, if, actually, even during the Cold War, uh, Kim Jong's uh, grandfather, his father, both played uh, the games pretty well. They played the Soviet Union and China against each other. And now uh, they're dealing with the United States and China. And looks like, you know, they are not uh, losing any anything in this game. So I don't think, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un is mad or is crazy. He, he's very smart, I would argue. But when you say he, he knows how to play the game, it's a very dangerous game he's playing. Yes, it is very dangerous, of course. And, of course, uh, I think he also understands the limits. That's why I don't think, you know, he will uh, intentionally provoke the United States. I don't think he will launch an attack on the United States directly, unprovoked. I think he understands that's suicidal. That's why, you know, uh, uh, we need to take his uh, threat seriously, but at the same time, uh, we don't have to be overly uh, worried. I think the, the number one important thing is to, to really 
sit down and talk to him, you know, and understand what what he really wants and what we can do, you know, to solve this problem. Well, or you know, there was a school of thought that uh, obviously, I mean, even Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has said that uh, you know he's open to diplomatic, uh, you know, diplomacy. Uh, I was almost going to say diplomatic relations, but that's what North Korea wants. But uh, you know the talking rather than and using the tough talk and making threats against one one another. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that uh, comes out of that is that there are people in this country who say that would be rewarding bad behavior, that it would set a precedent that a country like Iran, for example, or other countries that, that would threaten the United States and then get the United States to come to the bargaining table. What about that? Well, I beg to disagree uh, with that kind of uh, thinking. I think, well, I think you know uh, people who hold that view uh, totally misunderstand the importance of diplomacy. Why do we need the diplomacy in international affairs? I mean, now we we tend to focus on sanctions, as if you know sanctions are the only way in dealing with all these uh, thorny issues. But don't forget the diplomacy. Diplomacy uh, works. You know, sanctions actually most of the times don't work. And I think the problem here is that. Why, why North Korea and the United States are not talking to each other? I think one of the reasons I would argue is that uh, the message out of the United States has been inconsistent. As you mentioned earlier, you know, yes, uh, uh, Tillerson you know, prefers diplomatic approach. But on the other hand, you, know, you heard rhetoric such, such as you know, North Korea would be met with uh, fire and fury. And uh, I think the other day... Uh, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, said the talk, the time for talk is over. So, from North Korea's perspective, they totally, they are totally confused. What exactly is the position of the United States? Are you willing to talk? So, I think you know that's why I think we need to have a consistent policy towards North Korea. You know, and and you've heard this that there's a school of thought that uh, uh, President Trump's tough talk is something that Kim Jong Un understands, and that uh, previous United States presidents haven't talked that tough, and that uh, as a result, it's allowed uh, North Korea to develop its nuclear program. What do you think of that school of thought? Well, it's uh, it's a, a tit for tat approach. I think you know North Koreans are pretty good at you know meeting meeting the pressure with their own pressure. So. If we raise our rhetoric here, well, they, they will match it. And it also helps Kim Jong-un to uh, consolidate his power at home. So uh, uh, I don't think you know, uh, uh, the current approach from President Trump uh, is helpful. You know, when I ask you that question about uh, the, the stability of Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, there are people who look at, at him and the conditions in North Korea and say, okay, if if he is stable, if he really does want to talk to the United States, be recognized by the United States, to have an official end to uh, the Korean War that, you know, there was an armistice in 1953, why make these threats against uh, the, the, the United States? Why spend a huge percentage of the nation's income on weapons but not feed your people and make war sound inevitable through propaganda? But yet the North Korean people at least publicly, love the supreme leader. Right, right. Uh, no, see, again, from uh, uh, North Korean's perspective, you know, uh, the, they think uh, that the United States is threatening their survival. Remember, you know, Kim Jong-un is a dictator, you know. Uh, survival, regime survival is their top priority. Uh, from their perspective, the United States and, and its allies, South Korea and Japan, regularly hold military exercises right at their door. So they feel threatened. And that's why one of the demands from North Korea is that you've got to stop those military exercises right now. And countries like China and Russia also propose that maybe this double freeze approach may work, meaning the United States and its allies will temporarily stop military exercises and in exchange, North Korea will stop uh, provocative missile and nuclear tests. And those are some of the options that uh, um, can be explored. But, but you're right, you know, uh, I think uh, North Korean government, North Korean leaders should pay more attention to their own people. We're talking about 25 million people. Many of them are hungry and suffering from poverty. Uh, so it is, it is totally a wrong approach, you know. You, you put this uh, 
efforts, emphasis on military modernization, on nuclear program, that's totally wrong. I mean, you're uh, disregarding your own people. But again, uh, uh, it's not time to blame <laughs> the government. I think, you know, we need to help. Uh, I think uh, if, uh, anyhow, you know, if we can help uh, North Korean leaders to step out of that uh, situation, we should do it. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, as you, you know, accurately describe from what we hear, North Korea, I mean, you have people starving. You have people that uh, food is a, is something that uh, they don't see very often. And it's, it's a real, uh, you know, it's something they don't have. But yet they seem to support what the regime is doing. Is that support? I mean, now, granted, and a lot of this is propaganda, but do the people support Kim Jong-un, even though they don't have the essentials of life. Yeah, well, that, that's hard to know because we don't know exactly how the uh, North Korean people think. Uh, I think you know, part of it is that, you know, yes, uh, they're indoctrinated and brainwashed. But I, th- I suspect you know, part of it also because they, they genuinely believe that their leaders are doing a great job in, in kind of resisting the, the pressure from the international community, especially the United States. So... Uh, they they have this solidarity with their leader. It's not surprising, and we we got to deal with that issue. You know, so uh, uh, we don't want to uh, have this uh, hateful nation, you know, uh, and aiming at the United States. Uh, we really want to develop uh, this strong people to people relationship, and that's an area that I think uh, that is also uh, missing here in our discussion. We haven't done much, you know, to improve people to people relationship. We talk about uh, nuclear pro- program. We talk about the dictatorship. You know, we totally forget about the 25 million people over there. What have we done to sort of win the hearts and minds of North Korean people? I don't see anything that uh, has been done on our end. Let me ask you this. What don't Americans know about the North Korean people? I mean, we I mean, that question may be hard to answer because there is so much we don't know because it's such a closed society. But. What myths are that that we have that, about the North Korean people, about North Korea, that maybe we should understand? Well, we we don't know much. We don't any we don't know anything about North Korea, I guess, because partly because it's a closed society. Also, partly also because you know uh, the Western media don't know and don't have an accurate portrayal of 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 what North Korea is like. Uh, for example, I think the ordinary people. Are the same everywhere. I would argue. You know, they they all pursue a, a better life. You know, uh, they they want to uh, make more money. You know, and um, as far as uh, North Korean people are concerned, you know, uh, I don't think you know they care that much about uh, the nuclear program or or this uh, military first policy. I think their number one priority for most North Korean people, I would argue, you know, is is to have a good life. That's why they even risked their lives to cross into China to seek better life over there. Uh, so people everywhere are the same, you know. We have the same pursuits for, for, for our better life. That's why, you know, we, we got to help North Korean people, you know, from a human rights perspective even. You know. But again, that's missing in our debate. All right. We're going to be talking more about China's role in all this in just a moment and take some phone calls. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. We're talking about North Korea. We're going to be talking about China in just a moment and the relationship uh, that these countries have with the United States and uh, maybe how we de-escalate some of the tensions between the United States and uh, North Korea. With our guest during this portion of the show, Dr. Shi Chun Chu. He's a professor of political science and international relations at Bucknell University. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a message on WITS Facebook page. That's uh, on WITS Facebook page just by going to WITF, and you can find the Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's go to the tel- telephone now in Mount Joy. Is it Hunts? 
Hello, sir. You're on the air. Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Uh, I just had a comment regarding uh, the inconsistency in in diplomatic relations from the U.S. Uh, that the doctor spoke about earlier. Uh, I felt that they have been clear that, you no, know, they don't want nuclear arms, and the, uh, there will be no economic aid. You mean from the from the American perspective? Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much for your call. You know, he he does make a point that the, the it's not like the United States has not said, you know, here's what we want, but he, when they're saying we don't want North Korea with nuclear weapons, uh, from what I understand, you you believe that uh, the United States has to accept that North Korea already has that capability. Yes. I mean, uh, uh, I don't think we should uh, continue to uh, bury our head in the sand. Uh, yeah, in terms of inconsistency, uh, again, uh, I think the, uh, the, the approach of the United States to North Korea has been inconsistent. For example, you know, what, what do we want from uh, North Korea? I mean, sometimes we talk about military strike to get rid of Kim Jong-un. Sometimes we're, we're saying that, well, we do not seek regime change over there. So that's why, you know, uh, not just North Koreans, uh, many people are confused. You know, what exactly is, is our consistent, do we have a consistent approach, a, a policy towards North Korea? But Dr. Xu, I know that there would be people listening today who would say that you're making this sound like it's all on the United States. I mean, let's face it, North Korea kind of got the ball rolling on this. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm not trying to defend North Korea, obviously, you know, but I think, you know, uh, it takes two to tangle. Uh, North Korea is the, the weaker part, party, and the United States has all the uh, instruments to uh, do everything possible to uh, even get rid of that regime. But the problem is we don't want to go that way. I don't think military action uh, is, the, is, is a good option. Uh, that's why, you know, I think uh, as the bigger, more powerful party, perhaps we should be a little bit more realistic, you know, and get down to, to business and talk to them, you know. And not not doesn't mean that uh, we have to... Uh, compromise our principles. We have to meet every demand from North Korea. But I'm talking about a more pragmatic approach uh, from the perspective of solving the problem, lowering the tensions. Uh, Again, uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, we should endorse anything or everything North Korea has done so far. And we have an email here from a listener who asks, uh, what would uh, Secretary of State Rex Rex Torson have to say to Kim to gain trust? Well, I think uh, he can tell him uh, uh, very directly, very uh, uh, straightforwardly that you know we do not seek removal of of your of you from the position. You know, we we hope to to, to cooperate with you. We hope that uh, we can solve our differences diplomatically. I think you know uh, uh, gradually, maybe uh, the trust will be built between the two sides. Let's take a call from Sue in Colombia. So you're on the air. Hello, you're on the air. Okay, don't think uh, uh, she's there any longer. Uh, let's see, we have another... Uh, let's let's turn to China, because we do have some questions about China's role in this. Uh, President Trump travels to uh, China next month, where he's expected to put pressure on China to do more to rein in North Korea. Now, the, the Trump has already said in, in tweets uh, that China could easily solve the North Korea problem. You don't think so? Why? <laughs> well, again, uh, the, again, to me, this is a consistency issue or inconsistency issue. Uh, sometimes President Trump said, "Well, China, President Xi is a good friend of mine. You know, China has done great. Uh, China has helped us a lot." Uh, other times, he would say that, "Well, China has not done enough, and uh, we we have our own channels. We will talk to North Korea directly." So again, uh, it's it's confusing. Uh, I think, and again, uh, President Trump needs to uh, uh, make sure that uh, he has a consistent uh, approach uh, dealing with uh, North Korea, but also in, in talking to the Chinese, to Japanese or South Koreans, you know, exactly what is the U.S. intention? What do we want out of it? Well, but why don't you believe, you know, specifically that China can put the kind of pressure on North Korea to get them to, uh, if not, I mean, they're not going to abandon their nuclear program. I mean, I think that's pretty uh, pretty evident that uh, they're not going to do that unless they get some major, major concessions. Just don't see that happening. But uh, anyway, uh, what could China do? Well, uh, 
there's not much China can do. You know, I think the bottom line is China values relations with North uh, with with the United States definitely more than its relations with North Korea. Uh, but it's 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 found in this dilemma. Uh, I I don't think China likes the situation because after North Korea goes nuclear, you know, others may may be tempted to uh, uh, go nuclear too. Like. I mean, there already talks about South Korea and Japan going nuclear. Even even Taiwan has uh, <laughs> floated with that idea. Uh, but uh, China also has its problem of of uh, stability and border security. I mean, if China puts too much pressure on North Korea, well, that regime will collapse, and you can expect the millions of refugees cross into China, and you will have a tremendous humanitarian, economic, social, political challenges for China. I don't think China is ready for that. And also, from an economic perspective, you know, many border areas in China actually depend on limited trade with North Korea. If you shut down all trade with North Korea, these border areas of China will have a difficult time. Um, so it, it, it's a terrible situation for China. I mean, I think China really wants to help uh, the United States, but then it has its limits. Uh, the, the, I don't think it's ne- there's an easy solution here, and I don't think uh, even domestically uh, the Chinese leaders have a consensus, you know, uh, regarding what they can do about it. So that's why, you know, uh, on the one hand, you know, China has helped, has really kept its promise to help the United States. On the other hand, it is not completely determined to uh, to uh, abandon North Korea in terms of uh, cutting all trade with North Korea. You have said that uh, China. You know, you just mentioned that the humanitarian problems it would cause if there were refugees coming into China. China also has some um, national security reasons for not wanting North Korea to fall as well, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, in in two, uh, two dimensions. Domestic dimension, you know, uh, uh, domestic security, domestic stability is very important. I think the, we all know that the, the Communist Party uh, plays much emphasis on domestic stability. So if, if uh, North Korea is in chaos, of course, uh, it will spill over into uh, China, and uh, the China's border areas will be unstable. That, that, that's not going to be a work for China. But uh, on the other level, international level, uh, yes, uh, China is also concerned about uh, international security, uh, the future of, of, of the Korean Peninsula, uh, because we, we don't know what will happen after Kim Jong-un, after North Korean regime uh, collapse. Uh, if uh, the two Koreans reunify, uh, that unified Korea is uh, completely pro the United States uh, with U.S. troops um, remaining on the peninsula, I don't think China wants to see that. Uh, so I think the problem here, again, is, uh, is between the United States and China, actually. I think the United States and China need to sit down and talk about uh, uh, the future of, of East Asia, uh, and map out uh, a landscape of, of East Asia that is acceptable to both sides. Uh, you know, China may not want that, but uh, that would, from an American perspective, uh, the United States would probably, uh, that would be ideal for the United States to have a unified uh, Korea with uh, that was democratic and that the United States had a, a, a military place in, uh, in Asia. Right. Well, from a U.S. perspective, yeah, that's an ideal uh, solution. But uh, again, we're talking about the uh, U.S.-China problem here. I think from China's perspective, that's not a maximum. That's not a good option. You know, I think you know uh, they would prefer that uh, even even after the unification, they would prefer that the, the unified Korea will be at least neutral, not just uh, totally siding with the United States, uh, like what uh, South Korea has done so far. You know. Uh, you you establish good relations with both China and United States, but we don't have we don't know what will happen in the future, and we don't know the future plan for the U.S. troops over there. So that's why I think China has its concerns. I, I don't think those concerns are legitimate. You don't? Did you say you don't or you do? I do. I think those concerns are legitimate from a Chinese perspective. Hmm. Uh, let's take a phone call from John in Harrisburg. John, you're on the air. Hi, uh, my comment is more about uh, the worries of the impact that uh, North Korea has with the secret arms. Uh, they have repeatedly uh, reneged on promises when countries are trying to sit down and even just do simple economic aid to help uh, the countries, whereas even the poor and the starving, uh, the countries routinely reneged on its promises in the past. 
I don't really understand how uh, the the person here in the, in, in the show can, can can say well that the issue is uh, uh, both a mutual thing when countries have tried in in due faith to sit down with North Korea and they've just arbitrarily decided to not do that and then use their powers to bully uh, South Korea and local uh, countries like Japan uh, into submission with their uh, sinking of their ships, for instance, uh, artillery strikes on their lands. I, I don't really know what you think is going to happen when the next thing they do, once they have nuclear weapons, oh, if you don't agree with this, we're just going to fire a missile at you. Hey, John, thank you very much for your call. Uh, North Koreans can't be trusted, he's saying. North Korea cannot be trusted. Of course, you know, North Korea cannot be trusted. Um, again, um, uh, we, are, we are exploring different options in dealing with North Korea. Uh, I think broadly speaking, you know, we, we have you know, three options. You know. uh, number one, you know, continued sanctions. Uh, that's the current approach. Number two, military actions, taking military strike at North Korea. Number three, uh, return to the negotiation tables. I mean, other than that, I don't see any other possible options. But to follow up on John's uh, point, if you do return to the negotiating table, say you come out and come up with some kind of agreement, how is it monitored? How do you keep North Korea to that agreement? Yes, I think, you know, uh, the, any agreement needs to be uh, implemented uh, uh, very strictly uh, from both ends. Uh, again, uh, we can go back to uh, the 1994 agreed framework between the United States and North Korea. And we tend to blame North Korea for breaking that deal, but we never examine ourselves. Has the United States broken its own promise in that deal? Yes, we promised to build two nuclear reactors for North Korea in exchange for its abandoning of the nuclear reactor program. But we never, Congress never allocated the budget for building the new, two nuclear reactors for North Korea. So we also broke our promises. So again, I'm not defending North Korea, but I, I, what I'm suggesting is that, yes, it's going to be very difficult to implement any agreement with North Korea because <laughs> this is not a trustworthy country. You know, it's, this is a, a rogue state. But on the other hand, you know, uh, if we want to seriously address the issue, yeah, we've got to talk to them and find a way to implement the agreement from both ends, not just uh, focusing on North Korea, whether they have done their job. Have we done our job? That's my question. Let's go to Gene in Columbia. I'm sorry, it wasn't Sue, it was Gene. Gene, you're you're on the air. Thank you. I have a question and a comment. My question is, I keep hearing about um, Korea acquiring missiles. Now, who are they acquiring them from? Are they acquiring them or are they building themselves? North Korea? Yes. I think they are building uh, themselves. Uh, they may have they may have re- acquired some technologies, you know, uh, uh, from other countries, but I I think they have built those missiles themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And I have one comment. <clears throat> if Mr. Trump seriously wanted us to pr- pressure uh, China, why hasn't he called for people boycott Chinese goods? I'll take my answer off there. Thank All you. All right. Thank you very much for your call. And you know, this is something that I don't know whether it has been seriously debated, but there has been some talk of putting economic sanctions on China. Well, uh, I, I hope it's not going to happen, because it, it, this will be counterproductive. Because You cannot ask China for help, and on the other hand, you know, you, you sanction China for not doing enough. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I think, you know, it will be counterproductive. Let's go to Egan in Lancaster. Egan, you're on the air. Hi. Um, the troubles in, uh, between the United States and North Korea now are, are an example of what happens when you don't sign a peace treaty with a country that you're, you've been at war with. Uh, we have a truce with uh, North Korea, but that truce is uh, not, see, it's not a mutual uh, perspective. From the United States I, uh, viewpoint, well, at least we're not at war. Uh, forget about them. They're a country. They're no problem. From the North North Korea's perspective, we don't have a peace treaty. We have all these military troops on our border. We have um, sanctions on us. Of course, they're going. Of course, they're going to invade someday. We have to be prepared for an invasion. What is the only option to um, uh, forestall an, an invasion or an attack? 
nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea is quite rational. They're, they're, they're realistic. That's all I have to say. Egan, thank you very much for your call. You mentioned, uh, Dr. Xu, very early on that uh, what North Korea ultimately wants is a peace treaty, an official end to the Korean War. Now, this may be hard to believe for many of us. Who, I mean, this is going on, you know, this is almost 70 years now, and that there is not an official peace treaty. You know, are there memories that long? I mean, why is that such, you know, so significant to the North Koreans? Well, from, uh, from North Korean perspective, you know, the Korean War has never officially ended. So it's still ongoing. Technically, North Korea and the United States are still at war. That's why they feel uh, threatened. And uh, that's why I agree with the uh, uh, speaker earlier, you know, uh, the, uh, the quarter. Uh, yes, there is an arms tease here. But uh, from a North Korean perspective, we have 29,000 U.S. troops right next door. And U.S. military, South Korean military, regularly hold military exercises. So they don't feel this is uh, a safe environment. That's why they desperately want to end this situation to sign a peace treaty so that uh, they don't, maybe after peace treaty is signed, they don't have to develop a nuclear program. Uh, that's possible, you know. Uh, that's why I think uh, we need to seriously consider uh, this peace treaty issue. But let's talk about those 29,000 troops. If those 29,000 troops are not there uh, between North and South Korea, um, you know, obviously, South Korea sees North Korea as a threat as well, or else, uh, you know, South Korea would eventually say, you know what, we don't need these American troops here any longer. I mean, South Korea, who is one of the United States' biggest allies, uh, certainly sees the North as a threat and would be concerned that if those troops were removed, that the North would take, uh, would, you know, take that threat to the next level. Well, definitely. South Korea uh, would love to have those uh, troops uh, remaining uh, over there uh, because you never know what uh, North Korea will do. But again, uh, we'll talk about uh, the perception of threat from uh, North Korea's perspective. And yes, those 29,000 troops, no matter where they are stationed in South Korea, always right next door. But also remember, there are uh, about 35,000 additional troops in Japan, which is also close by. Uh, So... uh, Again, the North Korea feels that it's encircled by U.S. military, by South Korea, by Japan, and they feel threatened. They need to get out of this dilemma. They 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 want to defend themselves, and that's why you know they they focus so much on the military. Although we understand it's a wrong approach, we need to they need to focus on their own people. But again, this this is not a democratic regime. You know, this is a dictatorship. That's what they do. They, 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 they want their own survival, and they want to defend themselves. Let me ask you this. Uh, the United States, J- Japan certainly has been very, very concerned, raising alarms about uh, the missile test over the last uh, few months. Uh, this alliance between South Korea, Japan, there have been military exercises, as you, as you mentioned. Um, so is, does North Korea see those military exercises, see this alliance between South Korea and Japan, uh, maybe even some other Asian countries, as, uh, as antagonistic? Oh, definitely, yes. The, these uh, joint bilateral, trilateral, or multilateral exercises from, from a North Korean perspective, they're highly provocative and threatening. And... Uh, I don't think North Korea likes any sort of those kind of uh, military exercises. What if, um, what was the, I was going to ask about the Japan and South Korea alliance. Would, would Japan and South Korea, how do they think, uh, if you know or if you have an opinion, on uh, a diplomatic solution to this? Do they believe that it's, that's possible? Uh, I I don't know. They have an answer to that question. I, I think, you know, uh, uh, if anything, you know, uh, both South Korea and Japan, due to their proximity to North Korea, definitely uh, don't like a military option. You know, that's why, uh, uh, for example, South Korean President Moon Jae-in said that uh, any military action from the United States needs the prior approval from, North, from South Korea. And Japan, same situation. You know, I don't think they want to see any military conflict over there. It's not in their interest. Uh, you know, North Korea has threatened to test a missile that would head toward the U.S. territory of Guam 
If that happens, then what? Uh, again, it's a hypothetical question. I don't think, uh, at, at this point, I don't think, I highly doubt uh, North Korea would do that. But if uh, North Korea would do that, I think uh, they, they must be prepared that uh, the United States will retaliate, will uh, maybe even engage in limited military strike. Uh, but I hope that uh, uh, Kim Jong-un will not be so foolish as to launch an attack on Guan. So ultimately, what do you think the solution is here? Again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I don't see an ideal solution to the problem. I think you know, out of these several options I mentioned earlier, really talk to each other, return to the negotiation table is uh, only a viable solution to the problem. Yes, we may not like uh, uh, our... Uh, counterpart, you know, but but we have a problem here. That's what uh, diplomacy is about. If 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 there are no problems, everything goes well. Why why do we need uh, diplomacy in international affairs? I think diplomacy, the role of diplomacy, is important here. It, it's aimed at reducing tensions, solving problems. The, the parties to the diplomacy to the negotiation table don't have to like each other. Uh, United States and North Korea don't have to be friends even. But we have a problem. We have a situation. That's why. They need to sit down and, and, and talk to each other. I think that's also China's position, actually, because we have put so much pressure on China. And China said, OK, we'll help you. But fundamentally, this is a problem between you guys. You know, you got to sit down and talk to each other. Again, I think you know, Russia holds that view, too. Uh, to a some extent, uh, Japan, South Korea also would like to talk, uh, prefer a, a diplomatic approach. So that's why I've always argued that, well, military options is, is, should be removed. Uh, from our menu, although, you know, diplomatically, politically, we should keep it on, on our menu, but in practice, that should be not uh, not on the, our menu at all. But continue the sanctions, the current approach has failed. We all know that. So ne- negotiation is the only option available now. Dr. Shi Chan Chu, a professor of political science and international relations at Bucknell University. Dr. Shu, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A Georgia State University student has filed a suit against Penn State President Eric Barron after Barron refused to allow white supremacist Richard Spencer to speak on the PSU campus. The request was made in July. It was denied a month later following the violence perpetrated by white nationalists during demonstrations in Charlottesville, Virginia. So where is the line drawn between promoting free speech and allowing a speaker whose appearance could result in violence? Joining us to discuss the suit and speech on campuses of public universities is Seagal Ben-Parath, professor of education, political science, and philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book Free Speech on Campus. Den- Dr. Ben-Parath, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Dr. Ben Peroth, uh, Penn State is not alone in facing these kind of situations. There have been many colleges and universities, other institutions across the country that have faced similar circumstances. Uh, Some have tried to allow uh, the speakers, the controversial speakers, to appear on campus. Some violence has resulted afterwards. Others have taken the same tack that Penn State has, is that they are afraid of the potential for violence, and so they have denied the opportunity. So, you know, this comes down to some real basic fundamental questions about freedom of speech and the results of that. So how do you see this in this Penn State situation? Yes, so freedom of speech, of course, like every freedom or liberty or rights that we have in a democracy, it's not boundless. All of our rights have boundaries. And so I think we are having right now Uh, in the American public sphere, a pretty lively debate about the specific boundaries that this democracy right now hopes to draw um, in regards to acceptable speech, right? So this is the general public debate or conversation we're having on the topic. The ACLU is having internally this debate regarding whether they are going to defend you know, neo-Nazi groups or white supremacists who are looking for uh, permits to protest. And campuses are having this debate. And, of course, on campuses, this is more complicated 
by the fact that we are not a general part of, you know, we're not just a general part of the democratic public sphere. We are also educational and research institutions with our own missions, our own goals. And we are looking to educate young people on various topics, free speech being one of them, but of course also provide them with vocational training, with um, general education, and we are looking to do it in an environment that is conducive to learning. And so the complication that's created by outside speakers who are looking to speak on college campuses is both related to free speech generally, right? What are the opinions that we are looking to protect or support or promote in the public debate? And also the, the special circumstances that are related to the educational and research mission of a university. So, you know, this, this debate, if you will, or these discussions that are going on, has kind of changed since, um, well, Berkeley, uh, some of the, the violence that occurred after uh, uh, some, you know, alt-right speakers uh, appeared on the University of California campus at uh, Berkeley, certainly after Charlottesville. I mean, the biggest criticism that you heard even before those incidents was that there weren't enough conservative speakers on college campuses, that uh, college campuses were liberal, and unless there was a liberal speaker, if there was a, a conservative speaker, that that person, that there weren't enough conservatives invited to appear on campus. Now, the, the, the discussion has sort of changed because now there has been violence on these campuses. Would you agree with that? Well, I think that colleges, I mean, in terms of our own in members of our campuses, it's clear from surveys that we have that our um, faculty and on some campuses also our students are indeed more or less conservative or more progressive or liberal than the general population. So in terms of the diversity of opinions on some college campuses, it's not true generally, and I, I'm not sure at all it's true, for example, at PSU, but it's true uh, broadly in uh, some elite colleges that you have more liberal than conservative opinions. But speakers, in terms of speakers that are coming from the outside, uh, student groups, faculty members, and others are welcome to invite whoever they would like to invite. And you do have a lot of presence for conservative speakers. And, you know, you have uh, a significant openness for viewpoint diversity and a variety of opinions to be expressed on campus. Obviously, we cannot condone or accept violence being perpetrated on our campuses like nobody else would accept that on their home turf or in their business on their business premises, etc. So violence obviously is a line that we draw like anyone else would. That's a matter for the police. It's not a matter of free speech. But you can't really, and I don't think you should, um, limit the speakers that you have on campus based on expectation or anticipation of violence. That alone is not a sufficient reason for avoiding or preventing somebody for, from speaking. And we saw that at Berkeley, they were willing, as a public university, to have the same speakers that caused a lot of violence and disruption on their campus. They were willing to shell out a significant sum of money to provide security for them to come back. Of course, the speakers themselves ended up canceling because I think, I suspect, that they were hoping just uh, to get canceled and to get some publicity out of that. Spencer is doing the same thing. He's not invited by a student group or members of the PSU campus to speak there. He's looking through this person who is affiliated with Georgia uh, State University. He's looking to rent a space on campus as a way to um, publicize his unsavory views, 
and possibly to cause some disruption that increases his, you know, the media attention to his views and uh, helps him recruit more supporters uh, to, to the cohorts of people that, that, you know, tour with him or that uh, promote the same ideas. So just so I can be clear here, uh, so in your opinion, has Penn State and uh, President Eric Barron, have they reacted reasonably in this case? I think they reacted reasonably. I think the problem is, or, or the question here is a legal question rather than a question of free speech on campus, right? I think for the president of PSU or for the PSU administration to say, look, here is a person who is not a member of our campus, who is not invited by members of our campus, right? He's looking to rent a space here. Nobody has a right to the space that I own, right? Now, of course, this is a public university, so the public owns the space. This is where the legal complication arises, right? Uh, are they committed to renting the space in a manner that is neutral to the content of speech that is going to be expressed there, right? This is the legal question. As a public university, they are supposed to be neutral, not to promote specific points of view or suppress other points of view. And so they cannot say, we don't want you to be on campus because you're a white supremacist or because you are discriminatory or you um, uh, speak in favor of various violent or undemocratic actions. They are not permitted to do that as a public university. So the only thing that they can do justifiably is to say, look, you have caused violence. You are a threat to the peace and security of the members of our campus. And this is why we are um, a, hoping to prevent you from coming to campus. And this is something for the court to decide, right? Is this a reasonable enough threat is this an imminent enough threat and a reasonable justification for uh, preventing Spencer from coming to PSU? In my view, they took a very reasonable step after Charlottesville. Whether the courts accept it, I cannot foretell, right? We have to wait and see what the court decides. Dr. Ben Peroth, in your book uh, of uh, free speech on campus, you write about strategies that uh, institutions can take in cases like this. What are some of those strategies? So what I try to write about, and obviously uh, what we just talked about is one of them, right? So trying to to prevent violence or inappropriate uh, behaviors from coming to campus. But there are other things that institutions can do. Administrators can decide, for example, who can join an event like this. Uh, in some cases, you can decide that certain events are open only to the members of your campus. So there are various administrative steps that you can take. But I think the most important things that campuses can do today is to try to hold on to their mission and to try to promote their perspective or our perspective on what free speech on campus means. We need to create a climate on campus and in the public debate about campuses that recognizes that our mission is to develop knowledge and to disseminate it or teach it to our students. What we're trying to do is independent of and goes beyond the general democratic debate about free speech. And so our goal should be to teach our students about viewpoint diversity, to teach our students how to uh, negotiate different opinions. I was listening to the speaker you had on right before our conversation, and he was saying, look, the United States and North Korea have significant differences. The only solution is to talk to each other, right? So not to compare the differences here, but what campuses should do is to clarify to students and to the public, how do we speak to each other in civil ways? We need to model this 
And we need to support especially our students from groups that are being silenced or are being marginalized and rejected in this debate. We need to support them and empower them to participate in these conversations. If we care about free speech, we have to care about all members of our campus and, of course, members of the public being able to participate. Some points of view, including Spencer's, are points of view that are trying to silence certain groups or, you know, sometimes advocate also for violence, but definitely silence uh, religious minorities, ethnic and racial minorities, etc., and so what campuses should do is that they should counter that with uh, and taking the initiative, right, on framing what free speech should look like on campus and creating supportive environments and inclusive environments for our students to participate in the open debate. If we can prevent the most extreme, unhelpful, non-evidence-based um, speakers from participating in our campus debate, and if the courts approve that when we are public institutions, I think that is perfectly fine. But Dr. if we cannot, Dr. If Segal, we cannot I, do that, we should support inclusion. I have to interrupt. Dr. Segal, Ben Parath, Professor of Education, Political Science, Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, Joshua Johnson, host of 1A. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality. 